Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, and especially welcome new listeners. Maybe you saw the title, it said Daybreak, and you and you had just purchased Daybreak, so you came in, and you want me to dance like a monkey and justify your purchases. <laughs> this is a man, ladies and gentlemen, who understands his role in the media ecosystem. Thank you, Walker, for laying bare. For tearing apart the curtain that separates the content creators from the content consumers and articulating explicitly what we were doing. Welcome also any new listeners who might have been brought here by Efka's podcast. Efka said some very kind words about us in the latest episode of, of, of his podcast. And we welcome all of you. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me is my dear friend, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Hello. Of course, I call you my friend. I'm beginning to, I'm beginning to have doubts, Walker. Concerns. Issues. Hurt. Okay, look, we play a lot of games together, all right? We do. Now, this is normally something friends would do, but I've noticed lately in some of the games we play, when you have the option of giving yourself points or giving me points, you only give yourself points, which strikes me as not something a good friend would do. I think it's just more selfishness than non-friendship. Yes, what I'm positing is, is that you're broken inside and incapable of maintaining friendships. Lacking soul. Yes, precisely. So perhaps you're just a sociopath. Could be. Anyway, or any one of the Class B personality disorders, any of those old ones are... Anyway, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to mix things up. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And our feature game this week, as Walker alluded to before his angry rant derailed our entire conversation, is Daybreak, the co-op game by Matt Leacock and Matteo Menepasse. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to play Age of Innovation. This is the new... Iteration of uh, Terra Mystica, Gaia Project, Terra Nova, all of those combined together in this latest production that is Age of Innovation, designed by Helg Ogerstag and put out by Capstone Games. I couldn't help but notice that Jens Drogemuller, who co-designed all those previous three versions, is not credited on Age of Innovation. Uh, I, I guess Jens Drogemuller figured that, you know, three times was enough. Didn't want to go back for that fourth dip to the well. So what did you make of Age of Innovation, Walker? Well, it, I don't know. The more I think about it, the more I just, I I really liked it. Uh-huh. But I think I still enjoy Guy Project more. The difference in the factions. Like, there was there was some faction abilities, but they were so blah and or didn't really do much. You know what I mean? They were, like, sort of sideways. The Guy Project one, it really forms your sort of strategy and or how you're going to play. In their defense, I can imagine that the design remit was that in every previous version that they've done, well, the, the two previous versions they've done that have been devoured by the hardcore Euro community, specifically Terra Mystica and Gaia Project, very serious imbalances have been observed. Now, we are not the kind of group that cares about such things, but many people who play these kinds of games do care a great deal, and so... One of the ways that Age of Innovation differs from Terra Mystica, and admittedly, the differences are subtle, is that a lot of those quote-unquote faction abilities are purchased over the course of the game through these things called competences and innovations. So what might have been core faction differentiation is now sort of an a la carte experience. But anyway, I'm sorry guess, to yeah, interrupt you. You sort of customize, I guess, your own race. Yes. And the other thing, they've, they've not gone back, but they just kept up this track this cult track that just yep. does nothing refuses to die you just go up the track and, <laughs> oh you get to cycle some energy but that's about like when you compare it to the gaia project track where all of your abilities just continuously get better as you go up these tracks not only that the reward at the top is higher you get like advanced technology and it's just 
a better experience. I am never one to defend the tracks in any of the Terra Mystica games. And indeed, when Terra Mystica was first introduced and then Sulkin, th those two games, for what it's worth, I frequently complain about tracks in Euro games. Terra Mystica and Sulkin, to me, are the epitome of tracky games in a number of ways. And that is not to say that they are the trackiest, but they are the the way they do tracks is the most offensive to a design. So like many people say, oh, well, you know, what about uh, Tapestry? That's trackier. True. But there the tracks are integral to the, to the game. That is the game. It is the entirety of the game. Whereas in Sulkin especially, I guess Sulkin is the trackiest of all tracky games as far as I'm concerned. It's this ancillary thing where the benefits are incommensurate with each other and it's off to the side and it's easy to ignore. But at the end of the day, you might find out that it's actually the key thing that's going to differentiate what's going on. I, 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 I even object to this track element in games that I very much enjoy. Teotihuacan, for example, has very tracky tracks in that they're all different and they give these weird benefits that you go up them in different ways and they score in different Faction is this thing, it's a tiny little bit in the middle of the board, but it matters a whole great deal. Anyway, moving on. That's one of the reasons why I really liked Terra Nova, because Terra Nova does not have tracks. Ooh, no tracks. And so, yes, the, the fact that it just dispensed with the centrality of tracks was, was an element that appealed to me. And I enjoyed Age of Innovation 2. I don't know whether I preferred it to Gaia Project or not, but I definitely can identify one way in which it is inferior to Terra Nova. And that is that it is three times as long. It's long. It's long. It's long. It's long. It is not short is what it is. It's the other thing. It's long. And ultimately, one of my key criticisms of all of the games of the system is that I end up feeling vaguely dissatisfied with how I've spent my time. Now, this may sound circular. I don't like the game because I don't like the game. But if I'm going to be playing a two plus hour Euro, I want to feel like I've done something rather than just pooped out a, a small number of unimpressive buildings over the course of a field. Like, if I'm playing, just, just as an example, these are very different games. If I'm playing a game of Hansa Teutonica, I'm making offices all the time. Whereas in Terra Mystica, just putting out a single building, even a single workshop, can be a Herculean effort. And that's fine. I'm not saying it's overcomplicated. In fact, in terms of rules density, I think that the that the games overall tread a pretty good balanced path. Like, they're, they're not light, but I don't think they're overly complicated for the sake of being overly complicated. If someone says, wait, how do I do this again? It's, like, very simple. It's like, oh, it's this thing. Uh, and that's one of the ways, actually, which I don't like the tracks, because that's one of the, the parallel things. How do I go up these tracks? Well, there's no direct way, really. That's one way in which Age of Innovation is at least superior. You talk about these scholars and they do this thing. But and anyway, back to what I was saying. It, it, it all feels, to a certain extent, like much ado about nothing. And I enjoyed the playing, but I was really feeling the length. You know, after round three... Of uh, a six-round game, I was thinking, oh, okay, well, this is kind of interesting. Am I, am I going to be doing anything else for the next three rounds? No? Just more of the same? Ooh. Okay, buckle up. Yeah, Guy, <laughs> Guy Project seems to track along at a much faster pace. I think part of it is the fact that it's, it feels much tighter. And I had, The last time I played Terra Mystica was quite a while ago, so I don't really remember how much the economy flowed. But this, there was tons of cubes and tons of money. And it certainly it, seemed it, like the resources were easier to come by. And they've added yet another resource. And I just, I just wonder if it's just too much because now you're tracking mm. money, you're tracking cubes, you're tracking... Uh, books, scholars. Books now. Uh, power. You're also cycling your power. But now there's books. You need books to get these super advanced type powers. The innovations. The innovations, as it were. Yes. Not as it were, literally. <laughs> and there's also book book uh, actions, much like much like they, power actions. Yes, much like power actions, you can spend books 
probably not great because books are awfully powerful. You might not want to waste your books. The book I, action seemed – I was expecting them to be better. You know, I looked down at the bottom of the board and you could spend three books for some quantity of cash, for example, or you could spend five books for this boss power. And it's like, well, I think I'll get the power. Thanks very much. I think I think those are more like emergency actions. Yes, yes. But then again, the mere fact that they're there, it implies an economy that doesn't really manifest and thus indirectly adds to the rules load, which is not ideal. Look, I agree with you overall. I think that Age Innovation is in very many ways kind of two steps forward, two steps back in terms of how it's juggling with the economies. I think that when I look at Terra Nova, I can see what they were doing with Terra Nova. That seemed like a substantive advance over Terra Mystic, at least in terms of not even... A substantive difference, shall we say, to put it in a more neutral way. I understand why those two games exist in the, in the game's ecosystem. I look at Age of Innovation and I compare it to Terra Mystica. It's like, okay, maybe it's better balanced for people who really, really, really care about that kind of thing. And if you are, by all means, give it a shot. But speaking personally, it wasn't answering the kind of questions that I wanted to answer. And as a final complaint, and again, like I said, I, I enjoyed it like you did. But just looking back on it, I'm, I keep asking these why. Yeah. And one of the big whys that I have is why does it need to be so big and expensive? And this is true. This has been true of Gaia Project. This has been true of Terra Mystica, but it's only gotten worse as board games have gotten more expensive because this is a one to five player game with seven full sets of player components, seven full sets of wood, seven dual layer player boards, seven of everything. Now, with the way the iconography was set up, that is how it had to be done. But it didn't have to be that way. They could have made it so that they could... They could have made it a one to four player game and all just shipped these, it with four copies of All everything. these companies say the same thing. We can't do it. It's double layered boards. We can't figure it out. Fujikoro. Look at Fujikoro. Yeah, yeah. It can be done. They figured it out yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. Well, we were talking the other day about uh, Nucleum. There was a question that uh, one of the players had. I believe it was Warm Boy. He looked at it and said, why is there this little insert in the board? Why wasn't it printed in the board? Well, it's so that they only need four player boards and never need any more. And if they ever decide that they want to change things up again, they just print another tile and they don't have to worry about a new double layer board. This stuff adds up. It's a, it's a big, it's a large box, very heavy, full of seven different player components. It only needed four or five, depending on the maximum player count. You could have made it. Ha- you could have made it work. It wouldn't have been all that difficult. And quite frankly, I resent the extra money that's added off the top. I remember when Caverna was released. Right? Oh, we yes. talk about this all the time. Do you need seven sets of player components? No. So that's an extra reason to stick with whatever you've got. Look, if you're interested in the Terra Mystica system, you've probably already experienced it. I don't see that Age of Innovation does enough to differentiate it. Normally, I'm all there for these tiner, minor, iterative improvements. But honestly, this one's a very minor improvement uh, in terms of some of the design elements. And it really feels longer. Not in a bloated way. Like, again, this isn't bloated and overlong. It's just overlong. And so ultimately, I can't recommend it unless you're truly diehard into this system. Yeah, and if if you are familiar with it, the the one of the big changes, because like I said earlier, the faction abilities are very minor, and so they're very you know even along the board. And so what happens when you put out your big fortress? There's a pool of these like the palace. It's it's, the it's palace. a palace now, but it was when a fortress put, before. Sorry, yeah. When you put out the palace, there's this pool of very you know major special abilities but now anyone can choose from them right right so part of the of customization of your, yeah, of your exactly. factional so abilities you take yes. it and you put it in your board so that's one another big difference just that's- as just another example though of the the extent to which i think age of innovation is overproduced every faction and again they printed the seven times they could have even though it's a, a superfluous component they could have just printed it four or five times 
there's this little token that you put in the double layer board to hold your palace in place because the size of the palace indentation is the size of the tile of your palace ability. But the palace itself is smaller than that. So you need an extra little spacer to hold the palace in place so it doesn't slide around in your yeah. double layer board. Look, when you're trapped, like when you're in the car playing <laughs> Age of Innovation. No, no, airplane gotta... and coach. When you're in coach and yeah. you're playing Age of Innovation exactly. with the two people next to you that you've just met. Yeah, and it, only oh, one of whom speaks English. And it it it's a table hog. Like you have your giant map, Terra Mystica style in the middle, and then you have your The board isn't that big. It's not that no, much. No, that part isn't that yeah. big. But then you have a, a a giant sideboard for the cult tracks. Yeah. And then you have yet another giant sideboard that holds all of the other tokens eh. for the it's it's huge. And then everyone needs their own player area on top of that. A huge I think is an exaggeration. We did not have to we were not in a position where we were constantly juggling things around to make room for things. We had a harder time finding room for everything in Nucleum, for crying out loud. It's true. So, anyway, that's Age of Innovation by Helda Ostertag, published this year by Capstone Games. All is Paku, Walker. Paku all the way down. I say Paku, you say Paku. 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 Yes. Paku Paku, the game of the year, the game of every year, by Antoine Bozo, the real-time dexterity game. There are controversies, there are rulings, there are judgments. There are tears. There are tears, glorious victories, terrible frustrations. I, I'm i only half joking. Paku Paku is a gem of a design. It's marvelous. I cannot recommend Paku Paku highly enough. If you can find a copy of Paku Paku, the real-time dexterity game, by all means. Now, the, 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 the one of the geniuses of Paku Paku is that if you're not playing with time pressure and you're just stacking the dishes, you're like, oh, this is easy. Ain't no thing. But I've seen really tall towers. I've seen wonky towers. I've seen very, very short ones collapse because there's all these time pressures that are going on. And to say nothing of the fact that Walker may or may not get in between you and the tower if you're not quick enough, it's the nature of things. I say tower. That's usually an exaggeration. Pile. (laughs) (laughs) Mound, the conglomeration of Paku Paku dishes. Paku Paku by Antoine de Boza. Ravensburger 2017, small box, deliriously enjoyable, Paku Paku. Got to be introduced by to a game called Belradi by Sidewinder. This is a German sort of Dixit-type game. It's very interesting. So it has the normal giant Dixit deck, more little closer to, uh, this is not a hat, it's just like sort of a single object. And then you give out roll cards. One person is the artist and everyone else is you could sometimes you have two artists in our game we had one artist and everyone else is a curator so you flip two cards off the top of this just one giant deck and everyone has 18 cards and it doesn't really matter sorry the artist will have 18 cards and then the two curators will decide they'll look at the two objects that are out there and see how much they are different from each other and it's like because the artist has to choose cards from their 18 card hand to represent those two cards that were flipped up. All right. And so we look at the numbers and say, well, we think they should do five cards, three cards, you know, a a very number of cards. And so we choose that. The artist looks through their their deck. They put out the cards and then you put in some rat cards. Rats, you say? Yes. Okay. And then you, you shuffle them up and then the two curators go through the deck and they try to figure out which cards were the artist's cards. I see. And you sort of have to pair them up with the actual pictures. So it's and... the inverse of So Clover. Yes, just yeah, so. And it was, it's, I think I really enjoyed it. The, the pictures were a bit rough and we got like ratted, much like you do in, 
in like uh, so clover, like where they just get that perfect card. Yes, that, that really screws you up. What was that other game we played that was really bad? Was it When I Dream or a Neuromancers? Maybe there was another card where you know the yeah the, the Neuromancers the, had that, and the I remember the time that I played. Would, yeah, I would get an awful yes. card. And it's like how are you supposed to know? Anyway. Really enjoyed Balradi. This is designed by Michael Holth and put out by Mogul Verlag. I finally got to try something that I've been meaning to try for a while. I've been meaning to play Revive, the Helga Meissner, Christian Edmondsman, Osby Ailis Finson, and Anna Vermland design, which we reviewed earlier on in the year for a while. And then the expansion finally hit North America, and I desperately wanted to try it, and I finally got to play it. So this was Revive with Call of the Abyss. Uh, Revive is a is a most excellent medium weight Euro game where you have some dynamism with the cards and some tension about how to play the cards and a little bit of engine building and also some map presence, but it all comes together in a very, very straightforward way. The alien skulls bring them together, Mark. It, it, it's... Yeah, still no explanation about those crystal skulls, which are one of the salient scoring elements, but uh, one can hold out hope. Anyway, Call of the Abyss introduces the obvious first expansion for such a design, the mysterious, sapient, deep water jellyfish. Of course. Yeah, so it's a little boring and, and predictable in that sense. And when you build next to the jellyfish, you can commune with the jellyfish, as one does, all with the hopes of getting some new jellyfish cards. And the new jellyfish cards are, I think, the appropriate level of bananas good. Because you have to work hard to get them, and you're only going to get a couple maybe over the course of the game. Walker chose to spurn the jellyfish. No jellyfish for Walker. No. And I, I felt that they were worth the effort, but not obviously broken, which is a good place for expansion cards to be, right? You had the impetus to go get them. There was a drive to go interact with some of the new stuff, but it didn't feel like the entire game revolved around those new elements. The other thing that the expansion did was that it sought to address some perceived imbalances in the base game's economy. One example is there are a variety of scoring conditions and other effects that key off of this thing called scientific flasks. It's just these beakers. It's an icon that sometimes shows up in components. The problem is, is that it doesn't show up regularly on components, and you might have a game of Revive where you have a lot of scoring conditions keyed off of these beakers, but not enough elements entering the game that provide those beakers, and consequently you feel like the economy is being stifled a little bit. And so not only are there new tokens everywhere for all the stacks that you just mix in, and there's a, there's a greater preponderance of beakers in there, but there's also a new way to, by default, go and get beakers. And not trivially, but of course, it's just always available in the form of journeys. The other big change about the game is that in the original game, you got the, you got your own personal sort of end game objectives where you're going to collect the crystal skulls and that's going to multiply versus these goals that you have in your car. Like, like you said, have the most beakers or have the most, uh, board presence or so on and so forth. But now there's just one main one for everyone, which really, uh, sort of balances it out because sometimes, you know, the way the cards would fall or the way the map would, would, uh, would spread out. It would really favor someone's particular card or how the skulls, would disappear in, in certain ways because there's three different colors of skull that are all focused on those three different goals that are on the card. And it can lead to strange interactions. Like you could be gobbling up everything of a common resource because it scores off of your pink skulls. And so you're gobbling those up and getting all the pink skulls. And I might have that same scoring condition on my card for gray skulls. 
and I can't get any. I can't get any of the common resource, but there are gray skulls that are clogging the market, so I've got nothing else to take but gray skulls. But you've already taken all the things that score off of them. Here, it's at least it's unified. The competition is open. It's known. This is a recommended variant in the expansion, and indeed, it's compatible with the base game. So I, I, I recommend it. Having tried it, I, I, I very much enjoy it. There's also a rule for cycling through the displays faster, which is always good. If you're gonna have a display of toys, find ways to cycle them through faster. Nobody wants a stagnant display of toys. It's not good. And so overall, Revive is a design that I very, very much appreciated. The extent to which I enjoy Revive can be made clear by the fact that uh, I purchased a custom insert for it. I didn't construct it very well. I need to go back and glue more for it. But I I truly seldom go and uh, bling out games that I own unless they are among my uh, favorite uh, designs. And uh, Revive very much falls into that category. Again, going back to our discussion of Age of Innovation, when it comes to medium or medium-heavy Euros, I ideally want there to be some degree of player interaction. Revive has just enough. Not a whole heck of a lot, but just enough in terms of the board presence. And I like things to be clean and integrated. And ideally not go on too long if you can possibly avoid it. I think Revive ticks all those boxes. You can listen to our past review. I think that the expansion Call of the Abyss does what you want an expansion to do. Nothing felt super ancillary. Nothing felt easily forgettable. It wasn't one of those things where at the end of the game you're like, and now we score for the pizzazz points. Like, wait, what? I forgot about those. Oh, yeah, the expansion. And the toys were fun, and it, and it balanced the, the, the base yeah. game of the economy. So It addressed issues and, and did a great job at fixing them. Yeah, I agree. So Call of the Abyss, I think, is a, is, a, is a great expansion to a great game. Highly recommended. Again, this is by Helga Meissner, Christian Amundsen, Osby, Isle of Svensson, and Anna Vermland. Christian Amundsen, Osby, and Isle of Svensson are a dynamic design duo that have done a number of things that we very, very much appreciate. And this was published by Aporta Games. Aporta Games, once again, is a publisher that we are always on the lookout for. They have got a great track record. Probably our favorite game of theirs is Capital Lux 2, but Revive is truly stellar as well. Very quickly, I'm going to talk about Tetra Tower. This is a game you might have seen other like non-board gamer uh, media people play as you know a great dexterity game. There's been all sorts of ads on Facebook and so forth. And I decided to pick it up because it was a mere $8 for a dexterity game. And you know that's got to be great. Well... <laughs> I, no, that that's a lie. I knew it was going to be terrible. I just wanted to see how terrible. Sure. And sure enough, uh, there was no rule book in the box. It came with some cards, had all these different Tetris pieces, and it had a base with a, a rocker semi-moon with a sort of staircase pattern on the top. And then so the Tetris pieces would fit very nicely into them. And what you're supposed to do is flip a card. It'll tell you what piece that you're supposed to place. And it, there was Well, some... that's your inference, right? Yes. The back of the box... Insofar as it gives you slightly garbled information, nothing that I would resemble, nothing that I would go so far as to call instructions, seems to imply that the cards are optional? I don't know how the game would work if it weren't optional. I guess people would take whatever. Anyway, it would be pure speculation on my part, and I'm not going to do their work for them. So yeah, so flip a card, place the piece, Who the first person to uh, make it collapse or, or make a piece fall off is the big loser, cockroach poker style, one you loser. You think? Everyone, so I had to look up the rules. That is, that is. The oh, there story. are actually rules yes. elsewhere. Yes, if you go on Board Game Geek, you can. Oh, there are some. There are some copies that do come with rules. This oh. is one of these games that you know got published fifty million times because no one actually owns the rights to this thing. I see. I see. Yeah, but the same is you know the same could be said of Tapple, but Tapple came out beautiful. It's true. <laughs> and like I said to Mark earlier, the problem with this game and the really the the scarcity of the rules, and if you watch any of the videos, everyone's placing the pieces perfectly Tetris style. They all interlock, and and the game would be fun. But my my thought would be like, <laughs> the first person to knock over a piece 
is the loser. So why would you, you know, lock it in nicely? You just balance it across like a couple Place of Place it perpendicular, or, rotate yeah, it away exactly. that wasn't designed. Put it like, yeah. Because then it's the next person's turn. They're bound. Like they have nowhere to put it now. You just blocked, you know, it's, it's great. Anyway, <laughs> well, I'm going to pull it out. Next time we get together, we'll give it a try. Tetra Tower. Now, this I think leads into a natural segue to another dexterity game. Now, before we before we introduce it properly, I would just like to say one of the great things about knowing Michael Walker is that he views the world in a radically different way than I do, and I I, I genuinely appreciate this. Walker will look at a dexterity game and say, "Why should I place pieces the way they obviously want me to? They haven't told me I can't, so let's go and do this." Similarly. When it comes time to stack things, whether it's a competitive game or a cooperative game, I would I would argue, Walker's like, all right, let's be ambitious. Let's see what we can get away with. Whereas my approach is, let's be very careful and boring. We played Junk Art. Now, Junk Art, I was reminded of because going over the canon, the swag canon, a, a, a great reminder to spend more time playing games from the canon, to force ourselves to take kind of a break from work and go back to the things we know we love. And I I remembered in the abstract how much better junk art is from almost every other dexterity game, uh, but I the, the actual experience of the superiority of the pieces and the joy of the different game modes I had kind of forgotten. I I I failed to internalize it fully. It was a a joy to return to junk art. And the way Junk Art works, for those of you who are sadly uninitiated, not only are the pieces marvelously engineered, such that you're constantly finding new ways in which they interact with each other, but every time you play, if you play by the rules, and you can mix and match, obviously, you play by three different separate games. Some of them might be semi-co-op, some of them might be real-time, some of them might be simultaneous play, some of them might be alternating play, a lot of them have drafting elements, different kinds of drafting elements, y- you name it. And consequently, you never feel like you're playing just one game. It's just a whole bunch of different ways to interact with brilliantly engineered pieces. And if that's not the template for a successful dexterity game, I don't know what is. Yeah, and even the victory conditions, sometimes the highest, sometimes it's, you know, number of pieces that fell off. It's great. And it also encourages you to kind of extemporaneously talk smack or, or make nonsense up about the pieces of art that you're generating. And again, I think this is an opportunity for the genius of Michael Walker to shine. Because here I am, I've clustered my pieces together, you know, laid flat on flat, taken the, 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 the sort of flattest pieces first, you know, put a plank on top of another plank and say, ha ha, I'm doing all right. Meanwhile, I look over at Walker and he's got three spindles going off at right angles from each other and a flower pot that's dangling off the edge of a corner. Gravity's optional. <laughs> exactly. And he's like, bring it. He's like, all right, two different approaches to this game. Very much like life, very much like art. Junk Art. Junk Art is uh, absolutely a top-tier dexterity game designed by Jake Cormier and Sinfun Lim, published by Pretzel Games. There are a number of different editions. I recommend any edition that has wooden pieces, which is almost all of them now, I think. I think they discontinued the plastic version. But you don't need the, the, the fancy wooden box. Just the normal box is fine. I recommend Junk Art unreservedly. Honestly, between Junk Art and Paku Paku, I think I'd, uh, you know, aside from the fact that the local local crew has, has not come to appreciate Lupin Louie in an appropriate manner. But I'm well served by the ones that the local crew will happily play. That is Junk Art. We finally got to play General Orders World War Two. This it's, is a review copy we got from the publisher. It's designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson and put out by Offspree Games. And it is sort of a worker placement 
World War II game. Well, I wanted it to be more of a worker placement. Like when I read the premise and read the rule book, I, I really hoped that there would be more of crucial spots to hold in order to take those actions. But you pretty well always had control of your base, which gave you the artillery and gave you, you know, the majority of the actions, all the other spaces that are out in the field were mostly just advance actions. Well, I, I think I disagree with you there on, on two scales. One of them is, in terms of presenting it as a World War II worker placement game, I think the area in which it is deficient is not the the worker placement part, but rather the World War II part. <laughs> because I am a great appreciator of the works of David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin, both individually and collectively. And I have to say that General Orders World War II is probably even less thematic than War Chest. And War Chest, not really thematic. And... When I associate primarily the design work of more so David Thompson, but also Trevor Benjamin, I think of incredibly approachable, but nonetheless historically inflected conflict games. There's the Invented series, there's the Valiant Defense series, obviously for, uh, foremost uh, in, in, in their pedigree. Uh, but uh, General Orders World War II is um, very heavy on the General Orders, very light on the World War II. That's fine, whatever. I, I can enjoy an abstracted conflict game as well. Now, going back to the worker placement element. So when I think of, of worker placement done well, it can be done badly, and then it's just, as I've said before, a lazy way to distribute actions. But done well, it provides competition over desirable spaces, and as, as you talked about, but also pressure to do things in the right order. Because you know that if you don't do things in the proper order, your opponent's placements will scupper your plans. In that aspect, I think the worker placement in General Orders World War II is done exceptionally well. At the start of every round, it's a very, very quick game, four rounds. At the start of every round, I'm like, all right, I need to do these three things right now. <laughs> I have no time to waste on any of them. Okay, I guess I better decide which one to do first. And there is some blocking because it's, it's very gamey. It's very abstract, not very thematically uh, integrated, but it works marvelously in terms of gameplay. If there's a neutral area between two armies, the way you invade a space is you put your worker on a space, and that allows you to move adjacent forces therein. So if I get there first, again, that time pressure there, you're not allowed to attack me after I've shown up. Because the worker plays. Because the worker's blocking the space. Exactly. So uh, that led to further time pressures and more interesting trade-offs, despite the fact that, again, I, I couldn't wrap my head around what that was supposed to represent, if anything, in terms of actual conflict. I don't know. It, it wasn't transparent to me. But in terms of the quality of tense decision-making, especially when considered the paucity of rules and the incredibly light playtime, it was exactly as good as you would expect it to be from the designers, which is to say extraordinary. Now, there was one area, though, of the design that we both felt was a bit weird. Well, just, I just want to... Oh, no, we uh, don't get to say anything no, on my timetable. No, no. Never, never, no segues no. from me, no. ever. No. Well, I want to go on with, with the worker placement, because there's a sideboard that also has very important places to go. It's like where you get more troops, where you get these cards which we were about to talk about. Were we? So we're going to do a proper segue. And and depending on who gets there first, they're going to get more of uh, the said value, right? So, you you know, do I want to get in there first or do I want to get the troops or do I want to move in? And then when I get the troops, I can reinforce that area. Great decisions. And then there's the cards. Then there's the cards. That was probably where we felt the design was weakest because... You have a number of base actions. Say for the sake of it, let's just talk about artillery, for example. 
When you do an artillery barrage, what you do is you get to roll two dice. The expected result on a given die is one. So if you roll two dice, you're probably going to inflict two casualties. And if you play an action card at the same time as doing an artillery strike, you'll get two bonus dice. If you do, if you play a bonus, the, the right kind of bonus card when you're doing launching an attack, you get two bonus discs. When you're doing reinforcements, you get two bonus discs. The bonus is always two. And in context, we both felt, I think it's fair to say, that two was probably too many. It really seemed like, at its worst, uh, the success or failure of, a, of the overall play would be determined by who had the better cards at what time. And at best, it I felt it was like an uncomfortable constraint on my actions. That that delicious tension I felt about, well, should I reinforce first or should I do that artillery strike before Walker can reinforce? It's like, well, do you have an artillery card? That solves your problem, <laughs> right? I felt like it wasn't empowering me to make better decisions. I felt like it was it was giving it was guiding me too strongly in terms of doing one thing as opposed to another. Agreed. So I mean, ultimately, it's a small box game. It's hard to complain. Uh, too, too much. We also didn't talk about how there are special powers that differ for each playing that gets scattered. There are two different maps that work slightly differently, a symmetric one and then an asymmetric one with air power. The air power, I think, worked very, very well. If you have air superiority in a region, well, you get a bonus defense die, a bonus defense die. And that felt powerful, but not overwhelming. And again, it highlighted to me how I wanted more of the effects to work. Now, maybe this is just an experience. We've only played twice, one time with each map. And I, I'm interested in playing more. It's that quick. It's that in, it's that engaging. Honestly, I mean, you you should know by now if you've listened to the show before. We think Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson are brilliant designers who produce brilliant games. And General Orders World War II is no exception. I'm a little bit disappointed by the lack of any kind of of historicity that's evident to me upon first playings, and I'm a little bit disappointed about the outsized influence of the bonus cards, but other than that, I think it's it's a marvelously minimalistic experience that is definitely worth the 20 minutes of your time that it's going to take. True. And you can also use the cards to re-roll dice on top of that. And that seemed, would seem to be a waste. Yes. <laughs> because of how powerful they are in other contexts. That to me was the, 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 uh, the safety valve because frequently, again, you know, the cards are tied to specific actions. And sometimes I'd end up in a situation where, and maybe this was just bad play. I'd get the cards after having done my first action of the turn. And I'd end up with a mitt full of cards that say, Oh, boost that action you can't do anymore. It's like, Oh, uh, uh okay. Well, uh. So there's still something you can do with them, but it seems not as not as effective as, as the, the, the double bonus action. That is General Orders World War II by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. These really there'll be more General Orders games in different... I mean, I mean that's the implication. They've, they already have a very successful series with Osprey before. I would certainly be interested in seeing what they could do with the system. I mean, every version of Undaunted since Normandy has sought to introduce a little bit more national flavor, a little bit more specificity based on the theater of war, and a general orders game that was a, had a little bit more of a sense of geography or nationality or historicity or temporality or something, coupled with possibly either a better understanding on my part of the action cards or a slightly rebalanced action card system, that I think would be a genuine triumph. But yeah, one can hope. One like not for everyone, but there's sort there's something to be said about having sort of a connection to a particular battle, you know, in an area, right? So when yeah. you, when you when you abstract that all away, it just sort of doesn't have any meaning. Yeah, I agree. And some people prefer abstracts. Yeah, again, that's fine. That's what I'm saying yeah, it but, all depends on the 
And that that might be good for some people if they they dislike World War II and if you sort of take away all. Oh, of absolutely, that yes, yes. I completely, than... I completely understand why many gamers would much rather not be cast into the role of a totalitarian invading army. That makes eminent sense to me. <laughs> and if that's if if you're being scared away from General Orders World War II because you don't want to be a totalitarian, you don't know which side the t- <laughs> you don't <laughs> could be anybody. Tough to say. <laughs> Also played a couple of games on Board Game Arena this week. Played Rift Force, sort of like in in uh, because we talked about it in the Eurus last week. So uh, we decided to get back and play some Rift Force. Still a great game. You choose uh, four factions from a whole bunch of different ones. You mix all the cards into a deck. You're like sort of uh, blocking these lanes, moving units around, killing the other side to get points. Deciding when to refill your hand. Very interesting sort of uh, activation system when you uh, when you want to activate three of the creatures. You either have to pay what number they are or what race they are. Anyway, Rift Force, fantastic card game. Definitely give it a try. It is on Board Game Arena. It is designed by Carlo Borlini and put out by One More Time Games. Also, The Wolves is now also on Board Game Arena. Oh, all of them? All of the just wolves. the wolves. Got it. So we played a five-player game, Mark. We had a bunch of got a bunch of the listeners together, uh-huh. and it felt as though I had four turns, <laughs> and then the game was over. Because what happens in the wolves? It has this sort of like time track, I guess you could say, and every time there's some sort of significant action that takes place, uh, whatever counter was there, like you know, uh, a wolf counter or a or any all sorts of different tokens, they start filling this time track. So when you have five players, man, this thing fills up, and it felt as though, like I said, I had four actions. This is designed by Ashwin Kamalath and Clarence Simpson and put out by Pandasaurus Games. has very interesting sort of card action system. You have these five sort of terrain cards, and you're flipping them around, and depending on the type of action you need, you need to... And what type of terrain you're doing it in you have to have a certain number of that terrain type face up and you're creating more wolves you're doing area majority you're moving around you're converting uh, wolves you're some somehow getting um thumbs and building things (laughs) forming dens yeah and that is the wolves still (laughs) enjoyable probably not so much you know five player yeah, you probably want to keep it to three or four. I'm glad. I'm glad it gives you the option. You know, what sure. I mean? But yeah, I'd, I think I'd keep it a little bit. Uh, what less. if they published it with say seven full different faction colors? Would that make it better? Oh, for sure. As yeah, long okay. as you know they had accompanying boards and, yeah, yeah. and resources and everything for all of those players. Then well, yes. we 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 had considerable controversy. I remember last time we played about which faction was green and which faction was brown. It's true. <laughs> the, color, I, the colors in the actual game were. I remember little... Huey getting very heated. It was like, no, I think I think your board is supposed to be for the brown faction. It doesn't matter. He's like, started encircling his arms around yeah. it, pulling. Him up. No, no, I'm saying it doesn't matter. I'm just saying that I think the game thinks it corresponds. Like, no, yeah, yeah. Maybe he was just getting uh, into the lupine spirit. Tough to tell. Played a game of Cthulhu: Death May Die again. Going back to the canon, and I felt like some glorious stupidity. I wanted to do uh, play a game that was dumb, 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 and dumb in the best possible way. And that is definitely Cthulhu Death May Die, a game that looks at the Cthulhu mythos and said, wait, 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 but what if it was instead about punching Starspawn in the face real hard? 
And Cthulhu the Death May Die is the game that answers that question with, sure, give it a shot. And we're in a position now where actually it's it's revealing uh, a case where you can be the victim of your own success. The, the, the sort of tempo of Cthulhu Death May Die, this is a cooperative game, pretty heavy on the minis, very scenario-driven. The scenarios are delightful. We're playing a scenario where we have to go interrogate uh, people in a party, figure out if they're sorcerers, and if they are sorcerers, we have to gather them together at a cliff, and then... Um, they send them upstate. They go to. They swim upstate. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Where yeah. they're going to yeah. be happy forever with all their sorcerer friends. Precisely. Send them on vacation. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 A beach yeah. holiday. Yeah, yeah. And when once you do that, the great old one shows up, and then you smack the great old one around and try to win. The problem is that if you do this too quickly, see again, I'm a very conservative player. If you give me if you show me the low-hanging fruit, I will take that low-hanging fruit 10 times out of 10. Tantalus is not my kind of guy. And so ultimately, I there was we were just working towards the scenario conditions and I mean I, I wasn't guiding the rest of the play. It was just naturally we got there. I'm like, "Wait, we we can we can we can do this." And so we did it. And the great old one shows up. And there's not really an experience point system in Cthulhu Death May Die. It's more about, uh, you know, you do lots of tests and that causes your character to go mad. And as they go mad, they actually get more powerful. They get more dice and their skills level up. We haven't done a whole lot of that yet. <laughs> uh, the Great Old One showed up and we were all still just like figuring out which end of the gun to point at the enemies. And so here's Hastur being this great cosmic destroying master. And we're like, oh, hi. Hey, 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 buddy. Three dice against Hastur. No, no. Bad call. Uh, so things did not go well after that. <laughs> but nonetheless, I enjoy Cthulhu Death May Die. It's it's a lot it's a lot tighter than a lot of games of its ilk. It, the setup is 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 considerable, but it's not a sprawling epic mask. Yeah, you have to build a map out of about 16 or so tiles that come in the base game, but you do that, and there's a relatively small figure count all things considered, but nonetheless, you do get the sense of mowing down a whole bunch of cultists and punching Migo in the face. And, and It's a game that's so much better than it deserves to be. Exactly, exactly. You you look at it and you think you've played games like this a million times before, and to a certain extent you have, but the designers here, Eric Lang and Rob Daviau, hardly surprisingly managed to elevate it, both from a design perspective and from a theme perspective. This is very much revisionist. Eric Lang has talked before, and I very much appreciate this, how he is perfectly confident that H.P. Lovecraft, virulent racist that he was, would hate the overall presentation of the cast, and I think he's right, and the overall tenor of the, it, It's a big thumb in the eye to the Cthulhu mythos, right? One of those great works of transformation that you sometimes see in cultural artifacts. So I'm a fan of Cthulhu Death May Die. There's going to be more coming out from uh, Cool Money or Not. I'm, I'm much less big on Cool Money or Not than I used to be, but I'm absolutely willing to support this product line, both because of its revisionism and because I, the scenarios are genuinely funny and cool. And I'm curious to see what else they've got. So that was more Cthulhu Death May Die by Eric Lang and Rob Davio, published by Cool Money or Not in 2019. Lastly, for me, I Mark was nice enough to introduce me to Drags to Riches. This is a game designed by David Pettifer and published by Board Wreckers Incorporated. And what this is, is a deck building game, and you're collecting sort of your wardrobe for for catwalks or, your, your or look, shows. Your look. Your look. Your yes. look, sorry. For, for, for drag balls, honey. For drag balls. Yes. Okay. And for extravaganzas. So you need, you need hair. You need your eleganza extravaganza. You need uh, an outfit. You need accessories. You need some makeup and accessories. Like Absolutely. You, said. you gotta shoes. Beat, you gotta beat your face. You gotta shoes. Yeah. 
Yeah. You need all of these things. Absolutely. And like you said in the game, you during your turn, you're either using these, these cards for money or their ability, or you're putting them down into these slots for the, all of the things we said. And like you said earlier, the one part of the game that is interesting is that you decide whether or not you're going to commit the cards that you've put into these slots because you're putting them down face down. They all have a number value, and it's going to be whoever has the highest for the show is going to get this victory card. And every round, you know what the victory card is going to be. You, you play the full round of play, and everyone decides simultaneously whether or not they're going to be competing. And if they are, they get flipped up. Whoever's the highest total wins. If they don't, they stay face down so you can build your look towards a better event. That tension, that trade-off, that decision point, I thought was really well done and interesting. Yeah, I like that part. For the rest, I'm going to claim I'm going to claim Thumper. And uh, <laughs> what, what does claiming Thumper mean? Well, if you don't have anything nice to say, <laughs> don't say nothing at all. What do you do for a living, Walker? What's your job? What oh, what what Mark, is your job here? What what are we doing here? The rest of this game was awfully painful. It had yeah. tons of take that and and just arbitrary special powers and and it went on twice as long as it should have not twice as long about a quarter longer than it should have Mm. well i'll put it this way i'm glad we didn't play with four or five yes because the we played it with three and drags to riches is a two to five player game and more players just add on that much more time right a four player game is literally 33 percent longer than a three player game because it's just more turns and there's no player interaction other than that decision of when and where to compete. And it just consists of flipping up and, and competing with everybody else. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's the good player interaction. So there's two forms of take that in Drags to Riches. One of them is, strangely, this borrow and lend system whereby you're taking cards from other people's decks and adding cards to other people's decks. In a game of Drags to Riches as white, I thought I, it was, I was fine with that. And it's the primary way that you either trash cards or, well, you don't really trash them because they might come back to you. So, you know, and, and you get to, you know, gently role play. It's like, I've seen how hideous your wardrobe is. Here, have this busted ass tube top that I don't wear anymore. And gee, thanks. That's great. And that part's fine. And then there are the shade cards. And the shade cards, strangely enough, are less painful than the unblockable borrow and lend effects that happen all the time, but seem more arbitrary. Now, generally, they're, they're, they're less painful. Some of them are crippling, but they can be blocked. And so if you play the shade card, and this was identified perfectly by Huey, you get to have the bad feeling of semi-arbitrarily targeting somebody. And if it's blocked, you get to have the bad feeling as well of wasted your action and wasted the card. It's not great. Not great. And the player faction abilities... Everybody gets to choose to be one of the queens. And the queens, of course, have lovely pun names. Can you feel it? Catastrophe B, etc. I was Catastrophe B. I, I chose Catastrophe B purely on the basis that she is serving executive realness. And her ability was, once per game, take the most expensive card that's available in the market. Well, that meant that on turn one, I got to buy one of the most expensive cards in the game. I think that's why I won. I don't think there's much mystery to that, because as of round two, I was playing one of the most powerful cards in the game, whereas the rest of you had to actually work for it, and you better work. Now, uh, look, is the game charming? Is Drag to Riches charming? Yes. Does the charm carry you through most of its d design deficiencies? Yes. Does Drag to Riches' charm carry you through all its design deficiencies? In my estimation, 
No. And I am a great enthusiast as to the art form of drag, and I was very happy to support the designer and the designer's project. I am very curious to see what they follow this up with, if anything, because I think with a little bit of polish, they could... I, th I, I think this is one of those cases where you could preserve the charm and get rid of the overly wonky stuff and have something that is wonky, but still charming. I hope. That's my, that, that's my hope. But as it is, I don't think Drags to Riches is there yet. That's my hope, too. That's Drag to Riches. Sadly, not tens, tens, tens across the board. Those are the games we played last week. And now a brief pause as we pay the bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and luxuriating in the one and only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash games. And we're back. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, there's this fantastic sounding product. Okay. We've played two-player asymmetric games before like the woman's suffrage game yes where where you really just don't want to play this one side <laughs> well we were talking about world war ii games that absolutely applies much so of the time there there is this game called doubt is our product yes <laughs> right and this is yep. about the early days of the cigarette industry ah uh, not even ugh. i don't even think it's about like, the early days this is about like the, the times where the, they the heyday the heyday, the heyday, yes, the that heyday is a better way to put it. Cigarette company. Back when they knew they were killing people and were completely pulling a snow job on regulators and the public, yes. Yeah, so one player plays the cigarette company, yep. lobbying politicians and and doing their thing, Yeah, and and the other player is is not. It just sounds awful. That And that that Look, is... I don't mean awful yeah, yeah. as in bad, but just awful. And that in, is totally yeah. the design goal. Yep. Annabelle Holland has been very, very clear. You know, this industry has killed people that she loves. I mean, it's, it's it's harmed almost, like, it's hard to meet somebody who's alive today who has not been harmed in some way, directly or indirectly, by the tobacco industry. And make no mistake, I am of the opinion that adults get to poison themselves however they want, so long as they are informed of the risks, and so long as they're just poisoning themselves. And there's a lot of choices out there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, so, Amabel Holland loves designing games that make people feel bad. And that is one of the reasons why I love her her designs and I love her design philosophy and frequently respect her designs more than I enjoy them, right? Sometimes this absolutely works and it all comes together and you feel terrible about playing the game and you it, but it still works great as a game and you want to play it again and again. That was true of Meltwater, not by Amabel Holland, but published by Amabel Holland. This was less true in my experience of some of Amabel Holland's designs, but let me let me put it this way. I'm a huge admirer of her work. I'm a huge admirer of her principles, and I'm a huge supporter of her company. 
And uh, I often respect the games more than I enjoy them. But I'm absolutely looking forward to Doubt as our product. I'm glad that you're intrigued, too. I look forward to playing it with you and feeling terrible. (laughs) (laughs) One way or another. And lastly for me, there's a game coming out in February called Aqua, Biodiversity in the Oceans. And this is an interesting sort of tile-laying, puzzle-type game where you're trying to lay these tiles not only in a pattern that is going to get you points, but in a pattern that's going to attract a diverse group of fish. It's coral. You're playing all these different colors of coral. If they match certain patterns, then you attract different kinds of fish. Grab it soon while we still have coral. It's true. More on that later. More on that later. <laughs> so uh, Aqua is designed by Dan uh, Halstad and Tristan Halstad, and it's going to be putting be putting out by Sidekick Games. And I'm looking forward to giving it a try. Aqua. couple comments for me. I am an unreconstructed free market capitalist. Of course, free markets are never completely free markets. Uh, I, I, I believe in regulation. That's what makes markets free. But anyway, I sometimes get disappointed by how the market goes. Now, sometimes this is just me being cantankerous, right? Like, why is this game that I don't think is very good? Why is everyone buying it? Eh, I can set that aside with some difficulty. But the idea is that if a brand, if a company, if a given individual has a track record of incompetence or outright malfeasance, the idea is that they're not supposed to get future success in the market, right? That's that's the kind of conceit that drives a lot of my optimism about capitalism and the free market. And uh, sometimes the board games industry just likes to smack me around a bit and call me stupid. A couple of examples recently. So Palladium Games. They of rifts and a variety of uh, mediocre role-playing systems, but nonetheless showing a great deal of, of, of creativity in a variety of ways, not necessarily in the rule systems. So they stole a bunch of my money when they failed to fulfill the Robotech miniatures game. But if they have a new shiny, who cares? So they were publishing a reprint of their Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles role-playing game on Kickstarter. If you've failed to fulfill a Kickstarter, why is it the case that you can get a million bucks or more from the reproduction? thing? Why? Oh, because people want their stuff. It's the same old story. And I find it very, very disappointing. That it, why does Kickstarter even let them have the project? Well, the, I think I think it's the money, Walker. You think it's the money? I think it's the money. Could be the money. I think, I think it may be the money. So that's disappointing. Similarly, Blacklist Games. Blacklist Games for months have been saying, look, we're in consultation about having our licenses being acquired for distribution by another company, and they're the ones that are going to give you the stuff that we've owed you for years and years and years that you paid for fully, sometimes, twice, and don't worry, it's going to happen. We're going to have this partnership, and everything's going to be laid to waste. During that time, I have, in the context of our Patreon-exclusive show, Pledge of Indifference, had occasion to tell people that Steamforge Games is not a company you should support. And they, too, just go from Kickstarter to Kickstarter, churning out mediocrity, sometimes not even fully fulfilling their projects, based purely on the strength of their licenses, which is another reason why Palladium Games has managed to dredge up money, because people like them turtles. I like the turtles, too. Shredder's Revenge was a great game. I highly recommend it. Beat-em-ups are back, and I'm happy about that in the video game space. Anyway, Steamforge Games is going to be the one taking over blacklisting, so I am not holding my breath about getting anything anytime soon. And I, for one, am not looking forward 
to future uh, Street Masters titles in particular being put out by Steamforge Games. Now, I don't have any reason to think that they're going to do that because it's not an established IP from Sony that they can plaster on the front of kick, uh, Kickstarter and get a couple million bucks from people who just want a box of Horizon minis or whatever the hell. Anyway. It's going to be okay, Mark. Is it? Deep breaths. Is it? See, the thing is, and I've been listening to Efka for, for, for years. Efka Bluducas from No Pun Included. He talks, he's very concerned about the contentification of, of board games. And he's pointed to recent examples like Voidfall. I have no problem with Voidfall as it exists. Voidfall, to me, is a product from an established company that has fulfilled on all of its promises, catering to market demands in a successful way. Now, I don't have the same precise market demands that they do, but nonetheless, they're giving people what they want very successfully, and they've given me what I've wanted as well, even though I don't want the solo motor or some of the other cruft, right? But the cruft doesn't take anything off my plate. Meanwhile, there are these companies who've engaged in, again, outright mendacity or blatant incompetence, nonetheless finding success after success. That's what bothers me. It's true. I, in this global media world, it's it's baffling that they keep getting support. Yeah. FOMO of the type of, oh, look at all those stretch goals. Mm, that doesn't bother me. Whatever. If you get tempted by the fact that there's 50 billion extra minis in a thing and you figure, oh, on a cost per basis value, that's one thing, right? It is quite another thing. Like, sure, sure, they ran off with a whole bunch of people's money, but but this is... This is that license I really like. Maybe this is a distinction without a difference. I don't know, but that's what bothers me. And that is the news, and why it doesn't matter now. Won't everyone get off my lawn? Now onto the feature game. The feature game this week is Daybreak, designed by Matt Leacock and Matteo Menapase. Fulfilled this year after a successful crowdfunding campaign on Backerkit by CMYK. CMYK is a delightful publisher that puts delightful games. The recent Lacuna is fabulous. The small box game Spots by John Perry. I'm a big, big fan of CMRK's Walker. Why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Daybreak for one to four players? So Mark, you take control of a superpower. You're going to line up all your different carbon emissions, be it cars, industry, or whatever. You set up your power demand. You adjust your power output so it reflects your good power versus your bad power. And then it is time to play. You have these five action slots, and as your particular nation, you have your five starting cards. You have them. You have them laid out, and those are the actions that you can do right away. You get your hand of cards, and you can start manipulating, like tucking cards in behind, very much uh, like terraforming Mars, where you're adding symbols to these different action slots to make them better, or you like the actions that are on the cards that you just got, so you're covering up. Your starting actions and making them new actions and some of the actions you have to discard cards for some of them you can just engage for free some of them are once per turn some of them as many times as you want to do them depending on what the card says and this is all trying to reduce your emissions down while making sure you keep up the power demand that you need helping out your teammates trying to get your carbon output to zero net zero net zero right because the trees and oceans will soak a certain amount of carbon, and the goal is always to make sure the way you win is by getting to drawdown, which is where your net emissions are negative. Now, Matt Leacock hardly needs much of an introduction in terms of game design. He is responsible for 2008's Pandemic, which is, I think, fairly described in the hobby market as epic making. He's followed that up with 
a series of forbidden games, which are pandemic-ish, namely Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert, Forbidden Sky. Forbidden Sky being my favorite because it has the most magnets and the most electrical circuits. Yes. May not be a good reason to prefer a game design, but nonetheless, it's the one I have. Matteo Menapasse, on the other hand, does not have any uh, design credits to his name other than Daybreak yet, although he's got some things in the pipeline. And this is very much, Daybreak, I think, is, is fair to be described as very much theme first. I genuinely get the impression that the design ambit was led with the theme idea. This isn't the kind of thing where you suspect they had this idea for mechanisms and they came up with the idea afterwards about how to tie it all together thematically. That may have what happened chronologically, but in terms of an experience, that isn't how it feels. And to that end, you made the comparison uh, between Daybreak and Terraforming Mars. I think that's an absolutely apt comparison. Both did, I, did I say Terraforming Mars? Now that you said that, I think I said Terra Mystica at that particular point. But yes, I did mean Terraforming Mars. All right. <laughs> In that, there is a giant stack of somewhat unique cards that all do various things. And indeed, very much like Terraforming Mars, they are inspired by real-world science and or real-world attempts to... Uh, combat either emissions or reforest or what have you, related to, 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 to climate change in terms of, of decarbonization. I just want to stress at the outset that I do not know much at all, at all, at all, at all about this subject. I'm very, very much an ignoramus. And I very much appreciated the fact that every card has a QR code on it. Now, this may be unesthetic. QR codes are pretty hideously ugly. But every card has a QR code that will direct you to a web page that will give you, you know, three solid, three or four solid paragraphs of explanation about what the thing is. And on top of that, a description about how it works in games, in the game, and it cites its sources. To this, I have nothing but approval. Now, I may be being fed a line. Again, I don't know enough to independently verify any of this stuff, but the sources check out. I've checked a couple of the sources. I've ran them past some people who know more than I do, and it seems legit. And to that end, I find it marvelously instructed. When we play in real life, we've played on Borgie Marina as well, and in Borgie Marina they don't have those, and so they have direct links. But when we played in real life, there have been a number of cards where, like, I do this thing with this card, and I'm like, ooh, tell me more. And they're like, I don't know. And apparently it's about cloud whitening. I'm like, I don't know what that is. Whip out the phone, want to go read how it works. I've found that almost as enjoyable as the actual game itself. Agreed. So, right from the beginning, depending on which... Uh, nations you choose the game. Well, let, let's say faction because one because there's China, the EU, which is not a nation, the United States, and what they call the majority world, which is also not a nation. which is everybody else. Yes, yes. So the the book will tell you which ones to take in a particular in a three player game. You want these nations if you want the standard game, but depending on the mix, that's going to change the difficulty of the game. I thought that was very interesting, and because it's almost like there's a total number of missions, but then they're divided out. Between the different uh, factions, yeah, there's a lot of asymmetry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so the different nations are are focusing on different things and and need assistance. So, sure, the EU and and United States is oh, we're doing fine here. We have enough power. This yeah. is great. But then you look over their their power demands are slight, and a lot of their emission profiles are easier to deal with. Uh, with a, perhaps a minor thorny exception being the United States transportation emissions, which are ample and very difficult to draw to draw down. <laughs> And so you have to focus quickly on helping the other player that's uh, that's doing poorly. I thought that was a great part of the game. Yeah, and I think it, it it's perfectly thematically appropriate, right? There's this idea that, you know, you're going to win or lose collectively. <laughs> it's a co-op game, and it doesn't make any sense 
to look over at the majority world and say, I don't care about you. I, I've, I've, I've drawn down. I've got my nuclear and my solar. What, what are you complaining about? It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. And on the subject of losing, there's many ways to lose. So you can, like we said, your, your carbon, it builds up every turn. So you can ramp up the carbon right off the thermometer track and you've lost. You can, uh, if you start doing badly in the game, you're going to get these, uh, community crisis tokens and if anyone maxes out on those you lose and then there's you can run out of time you could run out, oh yes that's, there's a turn limit as well yeah there's six it. rounds of the game and if you don't if you don't win within six rounds you just lose flat there's a lot going on with respect to what you've identified and a lot of it is good and some of it is is perhaps uh troubling from a thematic presentation one thing that's troubling from a thematic presentation is there's there's an artificial forced dichotomy between winning and losing introduced by the gamification of the topic this is an inevitable byproduct it's it's hardly a criticism but it's worth pointing out the notion that uh the idea is how much warmer is the world from the benchmark of the turn of the, the turn of the 20th century and at 1.9 degrees celsius celsius by the way for american listeners is what uh sensible people use for temperature yikes ooh i'm going to get canceled for that uh <laughs> 1.9 degrees you win 2 degrees which is the paris accord limit uh you lose and eh, eh, my understanding, again, is that this is not a very good representation of reality. Like, for example, there's a lot of people who think that two degrees warming is inevitable uh, based on, on what we've already done. And there's no idea that 1.9 is going to be fine. Like, 1.9 is going to be real bad. <laughs> two, two degrees would be worse, clearly. But, you know, there, there, there's a little bit of a false dichotomy there, as I say. But I, I just want to emphasize something. We've been talking about carbonization, and obviously there's a big focus on power production and emissions and all that. But one thing that Daybreak does, and this I think for a game of its simplicity, it's a very rules-like game as, as far as how much it models, manages to capture a lot about all the non-sciency, non-technological stuff that is implicated in... The, the attempts to deal with climate change and decarbonization, namely the communities in crisis, because people still are going to demand to be powered. And if you don't, that's going to lead to communities in crisis. There are a variety of political events that are modeled in the game, representing lack of will, uh, active lobbying on the part of fossil fuel industries, to, to, to draw back to our discussion about Amabel Holland's game design, as well as, uh, you know, broadly speaking, community efforts and regulatory challenges and things like that. Now, none of it is particularly simulationist, but it casts a very, very, very wide scope in terms of what it seeks to represent. And I think that's appropriate. If, if you just focus myopoly on the technology, like if I were to imagine how, uh, Daybreak would have been, would have been made, or indeed, if you, weigh the, if you even look at the way that it's been modeled sometimes in the past, like I'm thinking of CO2 by Vital Lacerda, it gets a little myopic. And that's fine. That's fine. But if, if it were being modeled by, say, um, somebody who was just a, a technological fetishist, they would ignore all of these other areas. And that, I think, would do a disservice to the treatment of the topic. And even though, again, Daybreak remains very simple, you just get a nice sense of scope. Agreed. I love the demand on your cards. So like I said, more... Or likely you're going to get five cards at the beginning of your turn. Depending on how many of those crisis tokens you have, you might be getting less. And the game wants you to use these cards in too many ways. Because the demand is real. Because, like I said, some abilities need you to discard cards. There are crisis, main crisis cards out there that you have to tuck cards, certain symbols in behind. 
There are global projects that are that are usually very useful for you that also need you to tuck cards. And then there's just, you know, the, the new actions you want to do, that just the symbols you need to make the, the, the abilities that you have in front of you better. And then there's cards that you want to pass to other players. And all, and it's like a puzzle during your turn. I'm just wondering, I, I wrote deck milling. I always say I hate deck milling. <laughs> I, always, I, always, I always say I hate deck milling. Here we milling. go. But it is, a, it is a, in a way, sometimes you could make it because you you need a certain symbol. And there are cards that will come up that allow you to draw a whole bunch of cards and, and pick out symbols. Like it, they'll say draw eight cards and keep any cards that have these two symbols. And so you're it, in a way you are cycling through the deck. I'll, I'll agree with you. And then I'll segue to just elaborating on the way in which I think the card play is exceptionally well done in daybreak. There's a lot of variants in daybreak, the cards you pull, the crises you pull, the projects you pull. It may be the case that you pull a, gov- a, a, a crisis that is utterly crippling to what you need to do that round, and the only way to mitigate it, the only way to move forward, is to have symbols that nobody pulled. It is entirely possible. By the same token, the converse could happen, and you might find it, it, it too easy. Overall, I find Daybreak a little bit easier than I'd like, but whatever. That, that's fine. Co-ops being too easy is a regular problem, as far as I'm concerned. And that's just one of the things. I prefer to lose co-ops as, as opposed to winning them, but that, that that's a personal preference. We've talked about that before on the show. So I absolutely agree with you. There's there's a little bit of you're at the mercy about what the deck has done, but there's a lot of freedom about how to use your cards nonetheless. You may not be able to respond to the particular challenges of the round. Say you've got a particular card effect. Well, you could use a card in your hand to make that card effect better. Just tuck it behind it. Now suddenly it's got a better set of icons. It'll be more powerful. Or what you could do is you could pump that card now and then cover it up with a new card to do another effect going forward. And that might be really great this turn, but then you might be giving up that ability going forward. Can you afford to never do that first ability ever again? Or is it the kind of thing that you only really need now? And so you can chain things together. Sometimes in a given round of Daybreak, you'll be doing like 10 different actions because of how you're skewing together all these cards some of which don't need to be powered to activate, some of them you've set up before. Other turns, you might only be doing one, because you have to set up that one perfect activation by churning all your cards together and making this massive stack that'll do exactly what you need it to do. And all of this is covered by a remarkable simple card system. Most of the time when you're playing uh, Tableau Builders, Daybreak is very much a Tableau Builder, very much like Terraforming Mars and others, there's one way you play cards. You put cards out in your Tableau. Well, in Daybreak, you either put it out at your tableau, you churn it to activate your tableau, you churn it to make your tableau better, you pass it to your friend, you tuck it under somewhere else. There's a lot of freedom in terms of what you're doing with your cards, and that freedom is where a lot of the interesting decision-making comes from. Agreed. I think a lot of people like Terraforming Mars because you get that either lucky card draw or you get that very interesting engine and you work that engine and it's and it's fun you better work but then it just lasts forever and it's like yeah. oh i gotta pump this engine another turn yeah but and i feel daybreak la it's it's just a it puts so much game in such a short thing and your engine is constantly changing it's changing but even if you get that nice combo you work it a few turns and then the game's over and you either either won or you lost and then you either just play again or... Well, yeah. but, but your goals are constantly shifting. Shifting. You get that tableau that's really good at getting rid of dirty energy production. That's only going to last you a couple rounds. Then you're done. You don't have any more dirty energy production. Now what do you do? And 
the, the, the good answer is you're not bound to that tableau anymore. Just cover it up. Use that, those icons that you built up for something else. Ideally, again, sometimes at, somewhat at the whim of, of the draw deck. It's that dynamism, that flexibility, which leads to such great tension where I think, oh, okay, well, I, I trigger this, but then I immediately cover it up and then I power this other thing. I really like the way it uses cards. It's familiar and yet novel all at the same time. And it really lets you respond to the, the, the many different ways you're being pulled in good ways. And you do need to get a constant energy production going because at the end of every turn, they, they increase your demand every yes. turn. And a lot of the cards that get rid of the carbon emissions also say, well, you're going to have to increase your demand of energy yes. as well. So yes. it's this trade-off. It's like, well, it's which, really- which again is a lovely representation of reality, right? Like, electrification is the way of the future, but our grid can't sustain as it currently, as it currently sits is not equipped to deal with electrification of all these things. Unless you happen to live in say Quebec, this is not a dig against the rest of the world. Quebec is drowning in hydroelectricity energy, right? They, they do everything with, with, with electricity, heat with electricity, they do everything. The rest of the world doesn't have grids like that. It's just, if, if you haven't been blessed with that kind of, those kind of natural features, you have to invest in your infrastructure. And so many of the cards in Daybreak provide these trade-offs for you. It's like, oh, sure, you can get rid of a transportation emission this round, but you got to increase your energy uh, demands. And again, in terms of the asymmetry, if you're the United States or the EU, that's often doable. It's really starts to get more painful if you're the Chinese because they, they, their energy demands are growing faster. It's particularly painful for the majority world because their energy demands are growing the fastest. And so the strategies and techniques that might have gotten you through as the, as the Americans who desperately need to do something about their transportation emissions will not help you nearly as much with the majority world who, number one, have fewer transportation emissions to start with. And number two, have a rapidly growing population that desperately need to, ha- uh, uh, receive electricity. So while this is happening, there's this fantastic scale going on. Your player board is getting more interesting and and better. You're losing your emissions. You're generating your power. Everything looks great. <laughs> Fortunately, this other side, this other board over here. The world. The world. <laughs> you've now increased the temperature because your carbon sort of pours in this thermometer and like it's five. Yeah, because for... you're getting better, but you're still polluting like crazy. Yeah, it's like five <laughs> for every player. And as it goes up, you get these temperature bands and these temperature I bands. I hate those temperature bands. They haunt me in my they sleep. They multiply the penalty on the crisis cards. Yep. And not only that, as you go up these temperature bands, it, it's going to make you roll this die more often and the die is going to tracks there are a lot of tracks but they're not they're, <laughs> they're not, not pretty, ter- yeah they're, they're not, not very tracky they're, ju- they're just to sort of randomize things up it's you know the, the usual co-opy random and again from my understanding it accurately represents the death spiral as you're releasing more carbon say that's causing the permafrost to melt which in turn belches out more carbon which in turn causes desertification which nukes the trees that you are relying on to decarbonize the atmosphere to begin with and so things are real bad right from the start, but they get bad in different ways as the game goes on. Because you finish that first round, you figure, okay, I'm making, I'm making small progress in terms of making my economy better. It's like, oh, two, two temperature bands in the first round. Oh, crap. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you're just racing to try to make sure you're able to cross the finish line in time. Yeah. I love it. I love the, I love the, the, sorry, the, uh, the sequester carbon section. It's like you generate all of your carbon emissions and then you have this sort of these forest tokens and these water tokens and you sort of sink all, 
yep. all the carbon. Come on, Mother Nature, do your part. <laughs> and you sink all all the carbon, and then whatever you have left goes into the in into the into the thermometer. And then, unfortunately, the die roll is what's going to start nuking all those <laughs> trees and water. You're going to yeah. start losing the water. There are a lot of cards that let you do. Those are fun engines, you know, planting more trees. Yep. Improving the improving the oceans. Yep. But, yeah, lots of lots of. Well, they're things. good, but slow. Very slow. Which I think is appropriate, you know. These are cards that, uh, as a rule, will add a tree every round, and you can't speed that process up. Unlike, say, scaling up nuclear power, where if you have a really impressive set of cards, you can generate a tremendous amount of power uh, additionally. I will also note that, again, in terms of, of Daybreak, modeling my political priors. I'll just I'll just be clear about this. I'm very pro-nuclear. Uh, and the way Daybreak represents it is, well, you need a proper regulatory framework in place and you need to be careful about it. But then, yeah, it's clean power. Go forth. And I'm absolutely in favor of that. The, some of the criticisms that I've heard of Daybreak in terms of the way that it models reality, and these are people who know more about the topic than I do, so I'm happy to defer to them, is, as I mentioned number uh, earlier already, the sort of false dichotomy between 1.9 is fine, 2.0 is death. It's like, well, that's overly simple. It's not quite that 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 easy. But some people pointed out is that if you're the kind of technological fetishist who's convinced that there's some new toy that's going to fix everything, you might see that bias confirmed in Daybreak. I've also heard some people uh, say that the bias of, well, what we need to do is we just need to ride these changes out purely through resilience, that that bias will be confirmed by what's in Daybreak. And to those I say, to those I say actually... The fact that there's enough in Daybreak to confirm those priors actually does credit to how subtle and nuanced the presentation is, right? Because it models all these different things. Not models. It represents all these different things. If you want to emphasize one detail at the expense of everything else in the world, you'll do the same in Daybreak, right? Just in terms of the way you think it represents uh, the, the actual fight to deal with climate change. I, for one, am able to look at the fact that it talks about technologies that we use, technologies that we should use more of, hypothetical technologies that we don't have yet, as well as social movements, social change, regulatory changes, planting trees, boring stuff like that, as well as adaptability. And I say, yeah, that looks like all the things we need to do. If I have a criticism of the, the sort of conceit of Daybreak, it's that what it does is that it assumes at the outset that everyone is going to devote the necessary effort to dealing with the problem at the outset, right? Which is the big if, right? Because for, for generations now, for a full, uh, well, for a full generation now, climate scientists have been telling us the same thing. It's like, we can do these things. We just need to do them. And to which the response has been, on my part as well, and eh, that sounds hard. <laughs> and that's a, that's a tomorrow me problem. Exactly. Uh, so... <laughs> In terms, I, I think I, I uh, Chris Farrell, uh, a critic that I very much respect, he's like, you know, do I think that Daybreak will spark the kind of mass movement we need in order to actually uh, grapple with climate change? I'm like, well, that sounds like a pretty high standard for a board game. Will it inspire some people to learn a little bit more about the topic? I think so. And that's a heck of a lot better than most toys. <laughs> I, I have a slightly more modest goal as far as, look, my, I, I, I as I say, I'm a complete hypocrite on this topic. I'm not here preaching you to try to take climate change seriously. My local activism, such as it as such as it exists, is number one, woefully insufficient, and be directed towards other other goals. Right? It's just not it's not my thing. It's not what I do when I go to protests. When I when I when I try to do things, and I don't do enough of that as as I should. All right. 
But I think there's a lot to like in Daybreak, and I think it's a pretty good informational tool above and beyond the fact that I think it's a really well-designed game. Yeah, and the flow is fantastic, because what we talked about with playing the cards and and working your puzzle, everyone is doing that at the same time. And the cooperative mechanisms in order to run the AI that does the, the bad parts is is few and far between. Yeah, most of it's you. You're the bad parts. Yeah, <laughs> You're the one disgorging the carbon. That's where most of the problems are coming from. <laughs> the only major uh, criticism I have are the crisis cards. There are you, there are what there's one face up. Usually you're going to have three and, and it ramps up very quickly where you have five or six sometimes. And you're, you're always going to see one. There are some cards that will let you flip over one or two, but usually you're hitting a lot of them blind and there's, yeah. and there's nothing you can do about it. And it seems a little, you know, frustrating that other than have resilience tokens and hope that you can yeah. ride ride the storm. Exactly, I agree with you. As I said, Daybreak is very random in a lot of ways. I'm okay with that. My chief criticism of Daybreak is I don't feel there's enough cooperation. It feels very heads down to me. The key joy is in manipulating your own little. Ta- this is this is a common refrain for tableau builders. Not quite enough player interaction. There's some. You can absolutely help people, you know, call, say, look, we desperately need to get this project done. We need to mitigate this face-up crisis. Does anybody have a card? But there's not a built-in way to feed cards to people. There's And and commonly, it's the kind of case where someone can feed cards to people and say, well, anybody need anything? And like, no, 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 I'm just busy with my stuff. Yeah, and then, yeah, they, no one takes advantage of it the first turn, and then, well, the person says, Then well, they just cover no, it up. Yeah, no one's using it, so I'll just put another yep. action there. And then by the time people need it, it's too late. Yeah. yeah. Which I suppose is an object lesson, but I, I wish that there had been slightly more player interaction. That's all. Agreed. That's my chief mechanical criticism of Daybreak. Well, that's going to do it for this, this this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. We appreciate your having decided to spend the time with us. You can reach us at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us. We'll get back to you if we can. Thank you again for tuning in. We hope to see you again soon, and please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>